What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, Your Majesty, said Edmund. Each piece was sweet and light to the very centre, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious, but this was enchanted Turkish delight. Anyone who had tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it until they killed themselves. You see, the white witch entices Edmund with promises of whole rooms full of Turkish delight in her house. She tempts him that he would be a prince, that he would wear a crown, that he would sit and would eat Turkish delight all day long. C.S. Lewis, of course, is drawing Turkish delight in the language of the wardrobe in very sin-shaped terms. The, the alluring promise of power, of wearing our own crown, of calling the shots, of being in charge of our own life, of getting what we want, and it all feels so natural and attractive. And it entices us and it draws us in and it promises us so much but doesn't deliver. And it enslaves us. And so where do you go with your sin? How, how can it be dealt with? How can it be got rid of? Because the truth is our hearts are all fooled. And we are enticed, and we are stained, and we are struggling with different sins. In this room this morning, there will be many. And we are so ashamed of them. And because of them, they separate us from God. Sin promises us so much, but it is so damaging. So where can we go? remember our short series in Hebrews that we started last week, we are thinking about what it means for Christians to be humbly confident. And the story last week was a church who had received this, this sermon, this letter, it was full of people from a Jewish background and they had started so well. It was real. It was authentic. There was a costly love shown for each other, which meant they would take persecutions and trials in their strides because they knew that Jesus was worth it. And yet now the heat is really being turned up. And so some are drifting, drifting away, drifting back to a more accepted past, back to an Old Testament sacrificial system. It was respectable. It was legal. And so to stop us drifting, our writer wants us to to grasp who Jesus is. To put down a deep anchor into him that will stop us drifting off. And last week we saw that he wasn't just, just one voice among many, a man who's come to give his take on the world. No, this is God in the flesh. This is the one who made the world, the agent of creation, the goal of everything, the one who is sustaining his world. And with Jesus here, everything changes. So last week, if you like, we saw that Jesus was supreme. Have a humble confidence in what God has said. This week, we see that he is sufficient. 
sufficient to deal with your sin? Why would you go back to Old Testament sacrifices? They're done with now, our writer says. And verses 1 to 4 are astounding. What they say is that we will, what we do will never get rid of our sin. Let me read those verses again to us. He writes, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's saying, and I'll be quite blunt, he is saying that the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament ultimately did not work. Ultimately, it did not take away sins. Now, of course, they did serve a purpose for a time. They made it possible for for a, a holy God and unholy people. to to coexist to to have a relationship of some sort to worship but ultimately it did not work my daughter Ellie is currently reading through the Bible um, and she's reached the second part of Exodus the plans for the tabernacle and so we've been reading kind of night on night this, this relentless list of what they must do and how they must do it so that the people can have a relationship with God. The priests, the sacrifices, the outlines for the tabernacle. And yet ultimately, the system is deficient. So some people talk about three ins in our verses here that teach us about the law. Three ways, in which, if you like, in which the Lord intended for the law to point past itself. The three ins are incomplete, incapable and intolerable. It was incomplete first. That is, it is a shadow, verse 1. It is not the reality itself. It's an outline. It's a silhouette. The law, he says, is a fantastic gift of God. It is a good thing. But it is not the finished article. It is only a shadow. So imagine the young, in love, engaged couple. And they're having to spend the majority of their courting apart from each other. And of course, each one has the little picture of the other in their pocket, in their wallet. They carry it around with them, they put it by their bedside table at night, they stroke it, they kiss before they go to sleep. And finally, the big day arrives. And imagine with me on honeymoon over breakfast, she pulls out the little photo of him and starts chatting to it. We would think something was profoundly wrong. Also, the sacrifices served a purpose for a time. They pointed ahead to more, but now they can be done away with. Hebrew Christians, why would you go back to shadows when you have the reality? So it was incomplete. Secondly, it was incapable, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you see, no animal could ever be an adequate sacrifice, a substitute for the sin of a human. No, if it's going to be a true substitution, 
a life for a life, a like for like. And it must be a person for a person. And it must be a person who has obeyed God perfectly. Somebody pure. Somebody sinless. Someone who has kept the law. Somebody who is clean. But more than simply being incapable, it's thirdly intolerable, verse 3. So I take it your trip to the temple, as an Old Testament believer, would have a double effect. It would be a time of happiness because there's a relationship possible with God. It's incomplete, but it's a relationship. And yet also a time of sadness because you're reminded afresh of your sin, your shame, your guilt, the ongoing nature of our fallenness that needs to be dealt with. It's as if there's a huge highlighter pointing them out afresh. They they pointed ahead to something better, a better sacrifice, one where sin would finally be dealt with and done away with. And so why would you go back? Why would you return to a system that that he's already said in Hebrews is, is basically obsolete? Why go back? Imagine, imagine the medical illness that means that, that X illness can be cured with just one dose of one drug. Completely cured, gone forever, no longer the, the daily cocktail of, of pills that you need right through the day, right through the year. What would you say to the person who said, well, well actually I'd rather just go back to the daily dose please. But you say we have a cure now. One pill and it's done away with. You don't need to keep treating it. You can get rid of it. Well, so with Jesus. So it is for us. In fact, it's that claim of a cure that it seems to me sets Christianity apart from any other faith. In, in one way or another, pretty much every other world religion gives you a list of things that you must do. To be right with God. So something that means that you climb the staircase to know God. And yet Christianity is set apart because, well, it's what God has already done for you. Rather than us climbing up the staircase, he has climbed down to us. That's why we can be humbly assured. Because... We can be confident that we're free. Our sin is dealt with. So if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're a new Christian or you're just not sure where you stand, please get this straight in your head. It's utterly vital. What we do will never get rid of our sin. For the Hebrew Christians here, the drift was back to Old Testament law. It was something that was, as we say, respectable. It was legal. It wouldn't be frowned upon. For us, that that religious doing from a previous life might be our temptation to drift. For many, though, I think our drift is is a drift towards self-sufficiency. To make things right by ourselves. To work at getting rid of our sins. As if good works can, can scrub the sin off us. Can remove our burden. Many of you will be familiar with Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. If it's unfamiliar to you, it's a book, it's an allegory of a Christian, a man called Christian who's weighed down with his sin. And he wants to get rid of it. 
He wants to shed its weight from him. It strikes me it's an incredibly contemporary book. If you've not read it, you're looking for a beach read, give it a go. Mr. Worldly Wiseman tells Christian this. He says, why, in yonder village there dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality, a very judicious man and a man of a very good name that has skill to help men off with such burdens as thine is from their shoulders. Yea, to my knowledge, he hath done a great deal of good this way. And so off Christian heads to go and see Mr. Legality. And yet he's found one thing, the burden of sin is not removed. What he does isn't helping. In fact, things get worse. Says this gentleman, legality therefore is not able to set thee free from thy burden. No man was as yet ever rid of his burden by him. No, nor is ever like to be. You cannot be justified by the works of the law, for by the deeds of the law no man living can be rid of his burden. It strikes me that our danger is we drift towards obedience. We live a certain way, we keep our noses clean, we stay out of trouble, we give to charity, we go to church on Sunday, we read our Bibles, we get put on rotors, and by doing those things we think we might make ourselves more acceptable to God. Or we don't do those things, and we think that he isn't pleased with us. And we will be neither humble nor confident if we drift there we won't be humble because we'll think we've earned it we've climbed high enough up the staircase ourselves and we won't be confident because in our darkest moments we're not quite sure if we've done enough have we climbed high enough and those who aren't in the church look in at us and think we're do-gooders and we're hypocrites and we're attempting to pull the wool over God's eyes as if we could And so what we do will never get rid of our sin. Not through the treadmill of Old Testament sacrifices or the treadmill of relentless obedience for us. Never quite sure if we've done enough. But the good news is from this passage, we don't have to. Verses 5 to 18, what Jesus has done will get rid of our sin. So sin isn't dealt with by our doing, it is dealt with by what he has done. And when we really grasp that, and when we believe that, so we will have a humble confidence before God. strikes me though, I don't know if you thought it as Emily read, it's a strange tension in these verses, because the job is finished, it is done, the work is finished, the debt is paid, and yet it seems that there are still things to be getting on with in the second half of the verses. So first of all, look with me at verses 5 to 12, and you will see again that the job is finished. He begins by quoting from Psalm 40, and it shows us that even within the Old Testament, there was a straining forwards. The sacrifices were necessary, God's justice demanded them, but you see, he was not pleased with them as if his heart did not warm to them. He was waiting for Jesus. He was waiting for a permanent solution. A solution that means it's finished. 
And we know it's finished because he sat down. Look at verse 11 and 12. Notice the contrasts as I read these verses. So verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see that the relentless treadmill of religion has finished. Day after day, there in verse 11, Contrast that with for all time. Notice it's many priests doing their job. Contrast that with one priest. Notice the priests stand again and again, animal after animal, body after body, bloodshed after bloodshed. And yet after the one sacrifice of himself, of his own body, Jesus sits down. His work is done. He sits because his father is happy. He is satisfied. Justice is done. And so he's given the right hand, his place of honour. And because he's done the will of his father, so verse 10, we have been made holy. And so we can rest. No longer having to do to deal with sin every morning not having to worry that we're not good enough for God and that our sins for yesterday need to be sacrificed for because they've already been dealt with everything has changed with Jesus in Pilgrim's Progress it ends with this lovely picture of of release and freedom for the man who's burdened by sin He finds grace at Calvary. Just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders, fell from his back and began to tumble down the hill. And so it continued to do it till it came to the mouth of the sepulchre and there it fell in and I saw it no more. There's a real sense as Christians in which we need to grasp this, this fact every day and more and more. We never move on from it. It's how we grow up as believers. It's when we truly get that God loves us and has forgiven us and that Jesus' death really is enough and the masks can come off. And we can be honest. Honest with him and honest with others about our sin and about what we're really like. Because the cross is enough. And because he loves you. It's as if we're Adam and Eve in the garden and we've just eaten the apple and God comes looking for us and so we hide because we're ashamed. But he's forgiven us. He's covered us. And we can come out into the open. And that sin there, that one that you hate to think about, that you're so ashamed of, he's already paid for that one. you want to grow up as a Christian, then then dare to ask the why questions. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? What sin is underlying that action? What fear do I have? What thing other than God am I worshipping? 
How am I really being disobedient? Because you can afford to ask that question. Because the sin has already been dealt with. He's already paid for that one. You have been made holy. It is finished. Because we still sin though, don't we? We're still enticed by Turkish delight. You look back this last week and you see your sin, the ways in which you disobeyed God through what you thought or said or done. The argument in the car on the way to church, followed by the Christian face as you walk in. Why do we still sin? Well, because there's an ongoing process going. We see that in verse 13 to 18. He sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So tell me, who are the people who have been made perfect forever? Verse 14. It's those who are being made holy. Tenses are key here. So are Christians holy? Well, yes. Yes, in the sense that Jesus died for his people once for all. And so God looks at us and we stand before him perfect. When he sees you, he doesn't impute your sins against you. Past sins or present sins or future sins. He doesn't count sins against us. And for that reason, we can say, verse 10, we have been made holy. Or verse 14, we have been made perfect. Perfect forever. And yet we know we're not perfect. The Hebrew Christians definitely weren't perfect. We've seen they were drifting off for Christ. We'll see next week they stopped meeting together. Back in chapter 5, he says, you stop listening to God. So, so what is going on? How can we be holy and being made holy? How can we be perfect and yet not perfect? Martin Luther famously put it well in his lectures on Romans. He says that Christians are simultaneously justified and sinful. You're right with God, you're holy, you're perfect, our author to the Hebrews might say. But at the same time, you're sinful, and you're unrighteous, and you are being made holy. It seems to me it's this, that the final element of Christ being sat at the right hand of his Father, the, the place of honour, is that he, with his father, is the sovereign ruler over the world, over all his enemies. They will be defeated. Verse 13, do you see? They will be made his footstool. There's still work being done. John Piper, American pastor, puts it like this. He says, everything Christ died to accomplish will be accomplished. No enemy can hinder his work in the end. The atonement was utterly complete. The father was utterly satisfied. And all the enemies will fall utterly before the reigning Christ in heaven. So he is victorious, but not everyone at this point is bowing the knee. Even his people, you and me, are being made holy. Sin is being dealt with. 
Sin is being fought in us daily. That's a big part of what he's getting at. And so that's why he quotes from Jeremiah. He's already quoted from Jeremiah in Hebrews back in chapter 8. It, it, it tops and tails this section. It's a key passage for him. It's, it's the bookends, if you like. And he's writing about the new covenant. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sin and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So there seems to be a fault line within the Old Covenant that our writer has been expounding as you go through Hebrews. And that fault line is the problem of the human heart. Hearts that that keep running after other gods. Anything or anyone else that promises them life and joy. And so a key hope for the New Covenant was that the law would be internal, in hearts. It would be driving us. So believers are filled with the word of God as God's spirit lives in them. I will put my law in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Which means that God who, the God who has made us holy is also making us holy, enabling us, helping us by his spirit living in us his law in our hearts, to die to self, to live for him. Our next couple of weeks we will spend a bit more thinking about how God is doing that, enabling us to be made holy with his spirit in us, how we can encourage each other, how we can persevere. But it seems to me we can take assurance, humble confidence from the fact that he is changing you. We are not who we were. We are works in progress. God is making holy those whom he has made holy. God is perfecting those whom he has perfected. Now, as we finish, just a couple of thoughts and reflections from me, if you like, how this might work out in a church like us. Firstly, we can be a church where we can be honest together. Jesus has done it all. That means we can be honest with God and with ourselves. We can be a community where we are honest about our struggles and about our sin. We can have deeper relationships than just talk about weather or holidays or football or whatever it might be. I'd love to encourage you, if you're not in a home group, perhaps to prioritise that as a place where you can be closer to your Christian brothers and sisters, where you can be honest about your sin and they can be honest about theirs, and together you can point each other to Christ. Find people who can help you live the Christian life. There's a phrase that goes round that says that church is not a museum for good people, but it's a hospital for the broken. And I love that. I like it a lot because it highlights the reality of living as a Christian in a messy and broken world. It's right that the church is a hospital because we're all broken. But the thing about hospitals is that they are where people get better. 
They are where people are made healthy and they grow. And so secondly, we can be a church where we can fight sin together. So remember, Christ reigns and he is making his enemies a footstool. And so the sin in us is being dealt with. The reality of his reign is increasingly being seen. With his help, we are fighting sin. We are becoming more like Christ. We are works in progress. But you know, the danger here, or at least my danger, is that our hearts veer off back to verses 1 to 4 again. And we slide into legalism, thinking, well, my obedience, my fighting sin, my discipline, my being good, that's what makes me right with God, and God is happy with me. And we begin to notch up points. And we climb the stairs because we're fighting sin, because we're meant to. Now, it seems to me the basis for obedience, for fighting sin, is a grasp of and a thankfulness for what Christ has done for you. When I realise that God loves me, just the same when I'm disobedient as when I'm obedient, it doesn't make me want to obey less. It makes me want to obey more. Let's pray.